This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hi folks, this is Ken and you're listening to Hacker Public Radio. Today is special. Tradition dictates that I do a show. And yes, today's show is Hacker Public Radio episode 2000. And, and, and. Okay, it's actually 2300, including the t- Today with the Techie shows. But a tradition is a tradition. Anyway... Deciding on what we would do to mark the occasion, um, I have decided to honour the most dedicated companion of HBR down through the years. Someone who has been there with every host, uh, every contributor, every listener who's thought of recording a show. Yes, folks, it's our old nemesis, Procrastination. So, if you ever end up volunteering to do the administration here in HPR, every so often you'll get contacted with a message along the lines of, you know, I was thinking of doing a show on a very interesting topic and it might turn out to be a series. This has happened so often down through the years, even uh, in the interview with Droops, he mentioned it, that uh, the motto has, there's a motto here, it's not a show until it's on the server. So we don't actually care. Um, all it takes for a show to be accepted by HBR is two people to find it interesting. And as you know, Dave and I find all shows interesting. So including yourself, that's one over the quota. So we tracked down the worst possible procrastinator on the network. And this person is regularly on social media, IRC, his own blog, and even on the New Year's show itself, telling everybody what shows they intend to do next year and why they didn't do the show, blah, 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 blah. So I'll read out an email verbatim, and I want you to pay particular attention to the date that it was sent. Forwarded message, subject, what satellite communications date, due 13 deck 2005 plus 0100. Hi, I heard your call for content, and I'd like to send you some shows. I don't have a lot of spare time with work and a young family so I can't do a regular show but I can send you a series on a topic. I was thinking of doing a series on satellite communications. Wow. So, folks, that was 11 years ago. 13th of December 2005. So who was this person? Who do we need to track down for this? Ah yes, no other than my good self. Yes, I told Droops I would send in a show, and did I ever? No. And so therefore, for episode 2000, to mark the occasion, I have recorded this show. And to be honest, I have been jinxed with this. There's there's two aspects to it. One is, when I'm researching the topic, give you some background. When I joined, uh, when I came over to the Netherlands, the first job I got was in a, a satellite ISP. We were resellers to... We were providing the uplink for other satellite uh, ISPs. At the time, there was very little broadband, uh, even in the Netherlands, which was the highest, uh, one of the highest penetrations uh, of broadband in the world. There was only about 5% of people have broadband. Um, since then, DSL came along and cable networks uh, got their act together and stuff. But at the time, it was a viable alternative. Um, I was actually uh, working on content distribution. I was actually a Windows admin back then. Anyway... Um, it was actually there that uh, I got my first introduction to Linux because the um, the whole system was based on Linux. Um, 
written in Perl, actually, believe it or not. So what would happen is you as an end customer have a satellite card in your computer or a satellite router, and that's got a MAC address. And it listens to an incoming signal from a satellite. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. And it listens for the stuff destined for its MAC address. Now, that might come from a point-to-point connection, so um, something only for that MAC address, or it might be for something that it is subscribed to on a multicast network. So it is joined a group, or we've joined it to a group, and we're sending it out. So that for the group transmission, say, at the time, a big thing was digital cinema, and the question was, how are we going to send down those files? And the idea was that there would be satellite dishes on all cinemas. You go into a multicast group and all the cinemas would receive the movie at the same time. So that was that was pretty cool. But satellite internet continues to be uh, an extension, especially uh, the DVB standard, which is the digital video broadcasting standard, which is what Sky and, you know, a lot of the uh, satellite TV providers, at least here in Europe, use. I know in the US they use something similar. And it uh, allows data packets to be sent down there. So what you would do is on a, your dial-up modem, you get a, a free um, dial-up disk at the time from AOL or whatever. You put it into your computer, you use your modem, and you would connect to the internet over that. And usually these were free phone um, uh, services, and you would you know, be able to use them for a period of time. Um, then you would start a GRE tunnel, which would be a VPN connection, and we didn't encrypt the connection or anything, but all it allowed us to do was do um, an IP connection over the internet. And this is a basic Windows uh, a Windows package for business. Um, and that would connect to our platform, and then you would now be routing all your packets to our uh, uplink station. So you log in, uh, login password and we would have your MAC address of your DVB card you would send a request www.altavista at the time and the request would go to AltaVista go to uh, be sent over the GRE tunnel to us we would proxy it out to AltaVista we would get a reply back and instead of sending it back down to you uh, on IP tables simply sent it over to the address of the router uh, the router would take it and put it into um, a um, Tanberg, which was multicaster, um, sorry, multiplexer, and it would get sent out to the satellite. The satellite would broadcast it, send it down to everybody, basically. Everybody else would ignore it. Um, you were tuned in on that satellite and that frequency, and your MAC address would listen to that, and it would take the packets in. They... TCP IP being a layered level, the layers underneath are stripped off and just passed up. And all that the browser knows is that it sent a request with this uh, window, uh, with this ID, and it got a reply back from this ID. And it had no understanding of what happened underneath and it didn't care. So it actually works very well because it's uh, you got fairly high band if you're high bandwidth throughput rates. So long as there was um, there was it wouldn't be great for lag because you know you click a button and it takes half a second for it to go out to the satellites and back. So you know that's not very good for games. But if you're starting a download of a movie or something, you know that half a second that comes down at the time, like people run really slow connections. Um, half a meg connections uh, if they were lucky you get 23 uh, megabits per second um if the satellite was uh, was was per- empty um what shot it in the foot was the rollout of broadband and people trying to make profit because this is very expensive it's very expensive to host you have to pay um the uplink provider and also you had to um <coughs> basically everybody wanted to use the system at the same time which meant it was uh, the, the the contention ratios were very, very high. And uh, you send a request and you only get a small piece of the bandwidth. So that's that. <coughs> so let's first of all talk about the basics here. First of all, what is an orbit? We need to talk about satellites orbiting the planet. So first of all, what an orbit is. So if you take a football and you kick it, doesn't matter if it's a round one or a funny shaped one, and it will orbit the planet and then fall back to Earth. If you roll it along the ground, it doesn't. But if you throw it, it has a forward momentum and then eventually it will fall down. 
So if you have a better football player and they kick the ball further or throw the ball if you're an American football player, it will go further before it falls down. So it has a bigger orbit than the other one. The fact that it hits the Earth doesn't uh, actually matter as such from the point of view of orbits. It just happens. So this guy called Isaac Newton, you might have heard of him, had this idea that... Uh, thought experiments so that you built a tower anywhere on the earth it doesn't matter let's let's uh let's say we go up to mount everest the top of mount everest and we carry with us a gun and we fire that gun and we fire it in any direction doesn't matter what happens is that bullet goes out goes out keeps going firing 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 it's going forward and it continues to go forward but eventually gravity catches it and it goes down but if you were going, you fired a gun and maybe it had a little missile inside it and had its own little engine and started going forward uh, faster and faster and faster, the rate at which it falls would eventually get to be the same circumference as the Earth. Then you had an even faster one, a uh, um, more powerful gun, and you fired it off. Then it would actually fire straight off into space. At a particular point in time, it's going so fast that the effect of gravity gets less and less and less and less, so it curves down a little bit, but eventually heads off into space where the Earth's gravity ceases to have a, an effect on it. But it's that happy little interesting one in between that is the orbit one, so what we think of as an orbit, where it goes round and round and round and round. And the key part of that is basically you're falling the whole time. Sometimes it might it might think, you know, you think of an orbit as um, going around the Earth. Just go turn your turn your mind ninety degrees and and imagine you falling straight off um, off Mount Everest. No, that doesn't actually make any sense. But anyway. In order to orbit, you need to be going at a particular speed. So if you're like in the International Space Station, for instance. So let's break down these orbits first. You have no orbit, which is like your football thing. Suborbital trajectories, which is like a... Um, is where you uh, basically go up for a good bit and then come down without actually going around the Earth. Uh the trajectory intersects the atmosphere so that it does not complete one orbital revolution. Orbital trajectories, which are our the ones that we were talking about, and escape uh, trajectories where you orbit and you, you leave the planet. So, or body or whatever, moon or whatever you happen to be orbiting at, at this point in time for the purpose of, uh, unless HPR has a listenership that I'm not aware of, uh, we're talking about people on the planet Earth at the moment. Um, so a lot of this information is coming from Wikipedia and one of the main reasons why I had so much trouble doing this show is that it is such an interesting topic for me. I cannot stop clicking links and stuff so I've had to be really focused for the last three days because uh, I know this is coming up and this is the last time I'm going to get a chance to record it. I uh, I actually am doing a second part to, to this which uh, uh, which will be I'm going to take the recorder here and uh, just head straight up onto the roof. I'm going to press pause, walk up on the roof, and then uh, continue recording this thing. So hopefully it'll uh, get submitted automatically after I'm, I'm done that. Anyway, then, where are we? Yes, orbital position. It's worth noting that, so when you fire off a rocket, first of all, it, it goes vertically just to get out of the um, atmosphere. But once it's um, uh, once it's uh, gone up and off, it starts tilting and then tilting into orbits. So, um, one's in orbit to keep their speed in the atmosphere. An elliptical orbit dips into the dense air. The object will lose speed and re-enter. Uh, occasionally, a spacecraft will intentionally intercept the atmosphere and we uh, commonly refer to as an air-breaking maneuver. So, that's how they uh, slow down spaceships coming in. But basically, they um, uh, something like the International Space Station, as it rotates, it's, uh, I think, uh, 340 kilometers above earth that loses 90 meters a day so 90 meters a day like uh size of a football pitch i guess <laughs> having no idea how long a football pitch is yeah okay well whatever um so that occasionally has to fire its uh thrusters onboard engines in in order to raise it above 
uh, bring it to a higher orbit and when it's uh, refueled or refueling uh, um, station comes they will fire their their rockets and give it a, a bit of a bump to get it even higher into the uh, give it a higher orbit so there are lots of ways of defining orbits and if there was only somebody with a I don't know, maybe a Scottish accent who perhaps is professional in dealing with the night sky and all of this stuff could talk to us about orbits and uh, and other cool things that I was talking about. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, a bit of a flu. Anyway, types of orbits. So they're basically um, uh, the the type of orbit that you pick is depending on dependent really on what you want the satellite to do. So here are some of the classifications. A centric classification, so it's based on what they orbit. An altitude classification, based on how high they are, and that's the most common one. Inclination classification, based on the rotation above the equator, or on or above the equator. Eccentricity, which is based on their path. Is it circular or elliptical or like hyper-elliptical or whatever? And synchronicity, so based on how often they rotate. So often you'll have a combination of several of these describing a particular satellite that it's in one or the other. So let's uh, let's go through the altitude ones, which are the most important ones, I think. Um, by far, most of the satellites are in low Earth orbit, or LEO, as they call it. And that goes from 0 to 2,000 kilometers. So 0 to 1.2, sorry, 1,240 miles. So it starts at sea level and the first band is to the maximum height that a self-propelled jet aircraft has ever gone, which was set in 19, record set in 1977. And that is 37.6 kilometers or 23.4 miles. Now, the first artificial satellite was Sputnik 1 and that got up to 215 kilometers which is 133.6 miles. Think about this, that when you're thinking about these, how far the satellites are, like lower orbit satellites are really not that far away at all. As I said before, 340 kilometers is where the International Space Station is, 211 miles. Mir used to be at uh, 390 kilometers, 242. The Hubble Space Telescope is up there at 595 kilometers, uh, which is 369 uh, miles and the reason for the Hubble sp telescope being up there is because and again got distracted with this one uh, because our atmosphere filter out, filters out an awful lot of the um, wavelengths so only uh, like we see sunlight and radio signals are basically all that comes through the uh, atmosphere so if you want to uh, examine any other of the wavelengths electromagnetic spectrum outside of that then you got to get your satellite up or your uh, telescope up into space so that's why that has been able to give such fantastic images because it's not limited by the relatively small amount of the spectrum that we can see again no expert on this it's just this pretty much is just me getting very interested on in this topic so this is you can classify this whole topic as ken's wish list for stuff if anyone knows anything more about these so, then we have um, satellites that orbit the Earth in near exact polar orbits north to south. They cross the equation multiple times each day and they are at the same angle with respect to the Sun. Satellites on these type of orbits are particularly useful for capturing images of Earth's surfaces and images of the Sun. So, as they go around you will they take a picture of a building so the shadow is always on the same side of the same building and these are also used for the iridium um, satellites they also have a low earth orbit and they orbit around the pole the north pole so north to south pole um, those are basically if you think of the way a cellular mobile network operates those operate in a similar way except that Instead of you being in a train and being passed from one base station to the next base station, the base stations happen to be in the sky. And um, as you're talking, you're, they move across the sky at quite high speeds and then you switch from one to the next, um, which is why you get 
satellite communication over radio phone is uh, possible anywhere on the earth and it is also horrendously expensive so there you go that's that then the other type is medium earth orbit and that goes from uh, 2000 kilometers 1240 miles to up to the where geosynchronous orbit is at 35,786 kilometers which is 22,236 miles now you may ask yourself well the 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 definition of low earth orbit and medium earth orbit all was like nice to 2000 miles why why suddenly have we got this weird very specific uh down to the last kilometer down to the last mile thing um but before we go to that let's talk to about medium uh, earth orbits these are usually the ones over here are gps global positioning uh satellites and they have a interesting thing is that they uh rotate around the earth exactly 12 two times a day every 12 hours they uh they rotate around the earth so that is a feature that they make use of so why this very specific band for what is the next category which is geosynchronous orbits or geostationary orbits so back in the 60s this guy called arthur c Clarke came up with this idea that you know you have this um, area where you have, you have the rhythm satellites are spinning, spinning, or let's say the International Space Station uh, circles the Earth several times a day because it has to go so fast. Uh, it's constantly falling and its forward trajectory keeps it uh, moving and it falls in the same angle as the Earth. But if you go further out to the moon, for instance, it is still horsing along at a mighty rate of knots. That's a technical term there for you. Um, it's falling as well in respect to the Earth. And it is all but it is revolving around the Earth at a um, interval of 30 days. So somewhere in between those two, the higher up you go, the less times you revolve the Earth, uh, revolve around the Earth on a particular time in order to maintain a particular orbit you may need to maintain a particular speed so if you go higher then you need to maintain a slower slightly slower speed but you uh, the, the number of times you revolve around the earth um, decreases till such a point where it is you revolve around the earth once a day okay that's interesting why is that interesting, Ken? Everybody is going, please, we know this. Okay, anyway, it's interesting because from your point of view on Earth, you're revolving, and if you stick out your hand, and on your hand you're holding a satellite, and as you're revolving, the satellite is also falling at the same rate at which you're revolving. But if you look out there, it always seems to be in the same space in the sky, which is what makes it geostationary orbit, while it's geosynchronous. So the difference between a geostationary orbit and a geosynchronous orbit is a geostationary orbit is over the um, uh, over the equator, and what that means is that as the Earth uh, revolves around during the day, it still appears to be in the same spot. Whereas geosynchronous and not geostationary means it can revolve up and down during the day so it can the angle of inclination is not necessarily the horizon so as you look at it it looks like the satellite is bouncing up and down during the day because the earth is tilted and as it rotates the tilt of the earth goes around so from your point of view the satellite is going down and then goes up the same way that the sun goes up and down in the sky it's due to the angle of um, angle of rotation or angle of inclination of the of the earth for all you flat earthers out there, sorry, um, R.I.P. Terry Pratchett, um, but turtles all the way down. So why would that be useful? Uh, why would they, it going up and down be useful? Well, it turns out um, Japan has a geostationary uh, satellite um, over there which they're using for a geo, uh, global positioning system themselves. Well, it's not. It's a regional positioning system. And again, it changes twice in the one day. I have no idea if that actually has any significance or not, but it probably has. So people constantly are doing cool things with these orbits because they can. So for geostationary orbits, what that means is that um, 
well, let's let's just take if you want to communicate with the um, any of the amateur radio satellites which are out there, small. They operate in low Earth orbit, and they're usually sent up when they, you know they fill up the spaces and they 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 get sent out. They are tearing around the Earth, and they're basically falling. Um, in order to pick them up, you need to track them with a beam, and you can track them as they go across the sky and they go quite fast. The International Space Station also only appears, I think, for ten minutes in the sky at any given time um, and you have to track it from left to right imagine if you wanted to watch some tv and the satellite only appears every few hours and only for 10 minutes at a time that would be a rather annoying for you so for for tv communications it's very advantageous to have two things one a small dish that you don't need to point and two um they that your dish is fixed so you put it up and you forget about it so that's where geostationary satellites really come into their own they're there they're one point the fact that they operate at the frequencies they operate which i'm not going to get into i'm not uh this show will never end if i do um means that they have a higher bandwidth but they're more susceptible to rain and cloud interference but as it happens it it seems to work out okay so the last classification uh, uh, with relate to altitude is anything above geosynchronous orbits is considered to be a high Earth orbit. There are a few more that I want to mention. The graveyard orbit is what happens when they have satellites that they don't want anymore. Instead of sending them back to Earth, which would cost fuel, they push them to a higher orbit. Uh, with the last remaining fuel, they push them out of the way. And basically, uh, la, la, let's hope it doesn't come down. Uh, blah, 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 blah. So, some other cool uh, orbits, polar orbit, way of, of describing polar or, or orbits. Uh, another one that I find interesting is polar orbits, which, you, which is used for Earth mapping, Earth observation, spying. Uh, capturing um, Earth from time to time from one point, spying. And weather satellites. So the Iridium satellite constellation uses polar orbit to provide telecommunications services. The disadvantage of this orbit is that one spot on the Earth's surface uh, can be sensed continuously from the satellite in the polar orbit. That no one point can be. But it does cover, or it can cover, all the areas of the Earth. So that's handy for weather. Now, I was telling you about advantageous of having a fixed dish pointing for tv now say you had a um that's fine so that means it needs to be in uh geostationary or uh geostationary orbit on the equator well that's fine but the further north you go the more you have to point your dish down and the whole point of satellite communication is that it is designed to uh, daisy chain signals from one place to the other so you've got think in the netherlands there's a whole uh, the netherlands being flat for those of you who haven't done geography uh it's flat and in order to communicate the government during the cold war built tall towers that were 300 meters high or so and these towers independently communicated with each other um so that if anyone was taken out then the rest would uh, the signals would carry through and that works fine because they can see each other but eventually you've got the curvature of the earth comes into play again Again, sorry for the flat worlders. And uh, you can't get a signal from one place to the other. Um, in places that are not deprived of geography, like uh, or deprived of the third dimension, um, where they have mountains, your solution is to put the radio TV broadcast tower on the top of the mountains and broadcast to people. But sometimes people are in a, in a valley or the other side of a hill and they get very poor reception. Satellites solve this problem because with three satellites you can theoretically broadcast to all places of the earth so um signal going from one to the next and you can also bounce signals off satellites themselves so a satellite over asia can see a satellite over europe and can retransmit that to a satellite over the us and send the signal back down so that's how uh, you know live uplinks are, are quite often done um however say you are a uh, the soviet union and you've got some pretty cool guys who know how to put stuff into space. And you've got a lot of your population who are in the northern hemisphere up around Serbia. 
And so what are you going to do? Well, you come up with the Molya, Molnia orbit. Let me just play that for you. Molnia. One more time. Molnia. Molnia orbit, which means lightning in Russian. This is the coolest orbit ever. Now, I don't know if you've ever had those paddle games with an elastic band and a ball on it, and you go, and if you're good, you can do it against your face, and the ball goes out, and then it comes back, goes out, comes back. And if you put, do that over your right eye without it in your right eye, on your left eye, you can still see the ball more or less stays in the same place. It gets bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller, but it more or less stays in the same place. Right, this, this is how this orbit works. You have three satellites. They're spinning around the Earth. They're not in an, they're not in a an elliptical orbit around the center. They're spinning around in a highly uh, a highly <coughs> orbit. So they come very close to the Earth on the on the way in, and they go very far away. They're caught by the gravity, and then they come back and they go speeding around, and then they go out again. So the journey out and the journey in are very. Uh, are appear the satellites appear in range for quite a long time so as one is going out the other one's coming back and the third one is disappearing not only that but the earth is rotating as well and they're with the wobble they're picking up the satellite wobbles and it is it from the point of view of the satellite it looks like the um the piece of land that is that it's aiming at is rotating not not with the rotation of the Earth, but rotating with the wobble. So it goes round like you would screw in a light bulb or something, round, over and back, over and back. There are some animations on this. It is, I think, one of the most underestimated achievements. That was how they were able to bring uh, the Orbiter system online, which consisted of three highly elliptical Molnia satellites. Moscow-based ground uplink facilities and 20 downlink stations located in cities and towns in the remote regions of Serbia and the Far East. Each station had 12-metre receiving parabolic antenna and transmitters for rebroadcasting TV signals to local households. That is absolutely awesome. So I've included a link of the to that as well. That's just my personal. You see how we get distracted with this, you know? This is why the show has not been done. That and Murphy is very strong in this show. Everything that can go I've tried to record this umpteen times down through the last eleven years. Um but anyway. Yes, there's a nice two scale SGV of orbital at attitudes, and you can see on that where exactly all these orbits are, even uh, from the point of view of Earth. Uh, let me see the medium Earth orbit. It would be about four, two or three sizes of the Earth away is where geosynchronous orbits are, and there that's about a tenth of the way to the Moon, which is very far away, by the way, if you look at this diagram. Anyway, speaking of cool people with uh, space technology, we can't talk about satellites, so we've done orbits, satellites now, without talking about Sputnik 1, which was the very first artificial satellite. Soviet Union, and this is coming from Wikipedia page, so all the opinions are from here. The Soviet Union, struggling not to do a Russian accent, launched uh, it on an elliptical low-Earth orbit on October the 4th, 1957. It was 58 centimetres, 23 inches diameter, polished metal sphere with four external radio antenna to broadcast radio pulses. It was visible all around the Earth and the radio pulses were detectable. This surprise success precipitated the American Sputnik crisis and triggered the space race, a part of the larger Cold War. The launch ushered in new political, military technological and scientific developments so yes okay what's uh, what makes up the components of a satellite i was actually this is uh, this is one of the things when we had a, an internal class um when i worked at that satellite company and it was one of the most interesting classes that we had about you know what what issues you have with um with a satellite getting it into space um and I have not been able to uh, get a copy of that presentation. Uh, the guy wanted to give it to me, but uh, couldn't find it anymore. 
and also getting information on the actual components of a satellite you go from extremely simplified to no we're not kind of sharing that information with you but basically a typical satellite will uh well communication satellite here i have no idea what other satellites have they have rocket motors uh, to maneuver left, right, and up and down every so often. You try and, and then you have fuel tanks, solar panels, batteries, onboard computer, and antennas, transceivers, or transponders. What determines the lifespan of a satellite is not uh, the technology on board. Because there will always be somebody when they when they launch a satellite, they always try and put as much new technology into it, the best compression or the best transponders, densest. They've got lots of tricks for getting an optimal footprint and all that sort of thing. But at a particular point in time, they need to keep the satellites in a particular box. So you go to the uh, ITC U, and I've got a picture from the Boeing commercial satellite. Uh, Boeing Commercial Communication Satellite Geosynchronous Orbis and it gives you all the allocated um, uh, satellites from the ITC uh, U and where they are. So each of them are given a slot and some of those slots are incredibly desirable overpopulated areas and then you have other places like in the middle of the Pacific where there's nothing, uh, no satellites at all. That's not to say that those positions are not used but uh, you have uh, no satellites at all over there um, because you put the satellites where you uh, are going to have them, uh, be able to use them. So, for example, um, here we have satellites 2 degrees, 3 degrees, 4 degrees, 5 degrees, 7 degrees apart. So, uh, you know, a degree or something like that. Once you get a slot, you are required to operate in a box which is 18 kilometers by 18 kilometers by 18 kilometers well not by 18 kilometers but a box of 18 kilometers by 18 kilometers and these orbits uh, are not pure they're elliptical as in they, they, they come in and go out from earth uh, about 300 kilometers depending so that's pretty much okay but the position east and west is uh, important for an operator to keep there are satellites there because the fixed antenna are there and you don't want to be moving, drifting your satellite. So satellite drift is a big thing. Uh, your satellite drifts into your neighboring um, slot and then suddenly somebody who expects to have um, an Arabic channel is suddenly getting a Hindi channel or something. Um, so you, you're required to keep it into a box. The more stable... In order to do that, if if it starts drifting, so it hits uh, particles and stuff that affects it, or there's an earthquake on Earth which suddenly turns the Earth uh, around a smidgen, then all the satellites need to be readjusted to account for that. Um, and so the satellites are in this box thing, as they call it, and in order to keep them in there, they need to fire rockets to keep them orientated correctly. Those rockets require fuel. And the cost of refueling a satellite is more expensive than it would be to put a new satellite up, which has got newer stuff and newer kit. So the worth of a satellite is based on A, its position, B, how much fuel it's got on board. And when they're doing, when they launch a satellite, they'll launch it in a, in a low Earth or in a medium Earth, low medium Earth or orbit. And then they will... Um, fire the onboard, make sure everything's okay. Then they'll fire it, uh, send it into an uh, orbit, an elliptical orbit that sends it in to the Earth and out further and out further until it gets to geosynchronous orbit. Then they'll burn some fuel to keep it into a geosynchronous orbit. Um, what they will usually do is park them for a while uh, somewhere over the Pacific or somewhere so they can test them and basically it's just hovering over the pacific and then when they want to move it into position what they'll do is they'll slow it down they'll fire a little bit of fuel they'll slow it down so that it passes slowly uh the earth it's revolving slightly less uh, fast than the earth is and then it will catch up its position they'll fire the rocket again speed it up bump it up that little bit slow it down so they slow it down that little bit bump it up that little bit everything 
everything is based in conservation of fuel because the more fuel that you can save the more money you can make from your satellite and once your satellite is no longer you're no longer able to keep it into the 18 um kilometer box for geosynchronous stuff you'll send it off somewhere else to another orbit where it doesn't where they've got uh, a lot more free space on both sides so um where it where it needs a a larger antenna to receive it and then as it loses fuel on the 18 kilometer box then in order to track it uh, you would need to have a moving satellite uh, dish. So um, that brings it maybe into, uh, that mightn't be so useful for end-to-end customers, but as a business, if you're operating on an oil rig, then you might um, take some transponders on one of those satellites and have your moving antenna follow this satellite. So you'd be able to get a lot of bandwidth to your oil rig uh, for a very cheap price. So that, a lot of that trading goes on, just so you know. So other components of, but basically what a, what a satellite is. So we've got, uh, we got solar panels. So 40 meter, uh, once it goes out into space, the solar panels um, uh, come out. And they are 40 meter panels and they charge batteries and the battery charge compute the onboard electronics which probably is computers and they keep the whole thing going now you have uh several people might be broadcasting to a particular um satellite and what a satellite is 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 like a huge tall radio tower that's in the sky it takes in signals from one place and it sends them out on the other and i've put a link in the show notes that has got more more uh technical breakdown on uh, how transponders work so um, let me just so the word transponder is derived from the word transmitter and responder a communication satellite transponder is a series of interconnected units that form a communication channel between the receiving and the transmitting antenna it's mainly used in satellite communications to transfer the received signals a transponder consists of an input limiting device, a low pass filter, an input low noise amplifier, LNA, designed to amplify the normally very weak because of the large distances involved signals received from the Earth station, a frequency transla- translator, normally composed of an oscillator and a frequency mixer, used to convert the frequency of the received signal to the frequency required for the transmitted signal. And then an output bypass filter and a power amplifier. This can be a traveling wave tube or a solid state amplifier. And for more information on that, um, see the link that I put into the show notes. You basically received a, a signal in on a particular frequency and then that's down on from the uplink and that's downlinked on another frequency so what uh, satellite operators will do is they'll have uh, the, the most of the astro fleet and quite a lot of the ses astro fleet is managed by ses astro which are in uh, luxembourg and i was lucky enough to have a site visit there one time which is pretty impressive and uh, they um, control the physical location of the satellite you know where it is in the box and stuff and when when they need to do a burn and when they don't need to do a burn and they will allocate um to say to the bbc or freesat which we're going to be talking about now which is a um a broadcaster um so it's free to air satellite communications for the uk so they will allocate certain transponders and frequency codes for them and they will broadcast the uplink on those frequencies and then on their their website they will publish here are their receiving uh, frequencies for um for these transponders so you will buy a transponder or several transponders and then it's up to you to divvy it up so if you use an analog tv you're going to may be able to get four channels in there if you use an mpeg2 you might be able to get eight mpeg4 you might be able to get 16 so that um that's why all those technologies are quite interesting from a uh, broadcast point of view. But the same number of bits going through the satellite is quite important. From a data point of view, when you're sending data through, 
um one of the main one of the main issues they have with satellites is uh, as well as the fuel is they is the thermal issues that they have it goes from um 100 and something degrees celsius 150 degrees celsius to minus 150 degrees during the rotation of of the thing and that's uh, very stressful on on the um on the satellite itself but what they noticed as well was when they were sending uh, data through um, mostly when you're not transmitting or there was a, an exceptional bias to zeros and of course zeros means you're not transmitting anything so if you're not transmitting anything things get cold and once you start sending ones things get hot so you have this massive massive um, thermal um, the satellites were not lasting as long as they thought they would because of the thermal impact of going from you know a quiet time in the evening uh, you know when you're when it's nighttime to suddenly boom you're on during the day they never accounted for that so now built into the dvb specification dvbs specification uh between the uplink and the satellites and of course the downlink they have an algorithm put in there so that they're always transmitting bytes uh sort of semi-randomly that there will always be a more or less equal number of ones and an equal number of zeros. So they've built that into the, the whole system. Another cool thing they do is that they'll uh, it's polarized, so um, a low noise black. So they will have a big tracking station to transmit up in the microwave uh, KU band, um, which you can look this up as well, what that actually means in gigahertz. And then uh, it'll, res- it'll be sent down to your receiver. Your receiver is a parabolic dish, you know, shaped like a, a a a plate or a bowl, and that focuses the beams in to a particular point. And then at that point, you have a low noise block down device which takes the high frequency signals and converts them into lower frequencies that can be sent over a short coaxial cable. <gasps> oh gosh, I've said that about fifteen thousand times for recording this show. But anyway, that's that's what it does. And then you can bring that into your house and into your satellite equipment. And again, later on, we'll do. Uh, I'll go up on the roof and I'll actually do the pointing of the, of the dish. So one of the cool things they do there, though, is there's a. They also use um, the fact that you can polarize. You can polarize a signal. You can have a horizontal and vertical. Now, as far as I know, it's not actually horizontal vertical. It's more uh, like an, an, ellipt- an ellipse, a spiral, a helix that goes down. Um, but I will leave that up to one of my the ham radio enthusiasts to talk to us about that. So that is basically how satellites operate, and then it comes into a receiving device. Um, the signal comes into a set-top box. Um, you can also have USB ones. I've got one here. Um, I've got uh, old... Um, uh, PCI cards that you can use or a regular uh, satellite receiving box if you just want to receive TV receiving um, listening onto a satellite if you're into this sort of thing is really cool because a lot of the stuff is not encrypted and even you can see the packets going past and it's uh, it's just interesting from a understanding a DVB protocol putting a Wireshark on there and you can see like people uh, you know what people are doing if they're surfing the internet and that sort of thing I think a lot of that is is now encrypted end to end, so there's a lot less of that going on. But back in the day, it was um, before Wi-Fi, uh, open Wi-Fi points were were available. You, it was just mind blowing to be able to see all the stuff that people uh, were uh, were watching and using the services for. Um, so that goes into the um pointing a satellite dish so we will talk about that outside and i've got a link to the dish pointer site and a and and a printout of what i'm just going to use now in a minute to um to point the dish i'm going to be going to the astra 28.2 east or euro hotbird um uh, fleet of satellites which is the free sat ones and there's a list of uh those they're um co-located so there was um ses astra operates uh the astra 2e 2f and 2g satellites from there uh the the drop down box shows that 2a 2c 2d and 2f were uh, operating at that time so 
to D and 2A. 2A has been decommissioned, so it's been moved up to a graveyard one. And 2C has been sold on to somebody else and they get renamed. So when you hear about new satellite launch, new satellite for blah, 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 blah service means it could be some other satellite that's uh, end of life for somebody else. I've also linked in a a pretty uh, pretty cool page on how to get MIT TV working with uh, with uh, DVBS, so FreeSat HD. Um, what hardware you need? Uh, update, uh, update, update, install DVB apps and then player, and then you just scan user share DVB DVBS um, Astra 2E, which has got all the information you need into your channels.conf file. Um, if you've done any DVB stuff at all, this is very very similar. Uh, so that's all pretty cool and you can then start watching TV or um, you can start doing uh, ISP stuff so uh, people who are using um, satellite internet might want to um, record us a little show and see how that goes so some other things that we're going to need for part of this is the azimuth which is the distance from north Altitude, or in our thing, it's elevation, which is the distance from the equator up. And let me just pause this right now. I don't, I really don't believe this. This is now the third time I've had to record this. The first time, the batteries ran out. The second time, I had the double record <sighs> zoom hitch to bug. Right, I don't have a choice but to continue recording this because this show has to be released and there's no way to stop it. The day I picked happens to be the most windy day in when I just step out here. There uh, happens to be a force nine gale going on at the minute and two of my panels have uh, already fallen down. The neighbour's roof has come off and they've got uh, um, sandbags up there to stop the um, roof falling off so anyway um, what we're here to explain to you is how the ins and outs of pointing a satellite dish it's not something that uh, I ever was that particularly good at mostly because there's three things involved you need to get the uh, the location of the satellite east and west uh, where it's located you need to uh, point uh, based on elevation then you need to adjust the for polarization well I'll try and put on a uh, sound uh, it's absolutely freezing cold up here I've been up here for an hour and a half and before I go I need to remember to clean out that gutter the half of my flat roof is uh, dry the other half has got an inch of uh, water on it so where it's clogged up with um, leaves and stuff. Anyway. I'm still recording. Okay, fine. Anyway, a satellite dish uh, is actually quite reasonably cheap. You can buy a, a card for 28 uh, euros or so for a cheap USB satellite card. Devices, you can buy a whole kit, including the satellite dish and stand and the receiver for 150 euros dollars you know in the ballpark sub 200 euros you'll have yourself a good kit and there's a lot of uh, reasons to to get that like um freesat in the uk we're just in the boundary of uh, freesat here and you can um get a lot of uk and irish programming uh, free to air um so the three things that you need to know about when pointing a satellite we've already covered elevation azimuth which is how much left and right basically elevation is how much up and down and the last thing is the skew now back in the day they the if you are pointing a satellite dish the best thing to do is get your stand correct if you're using a portable stand if you put it on a level surface you're good um, if you're attaching it to the wall make sure it's 100% vertical in all directions that will make your life an awful lot easier so that, that will get that out of the way uh, I have a satellite finder which uh, connects between the LMB which is the no, uh, low noise block down device or low noise block they always call this but anyway 
it's the thing for converting microwave signals down into the range that can be carried across a coaxial cable now your coaxial cable will connect with a it's a sort of higher quality cable um i think 75 ohms uh the impedance and it has got uh, I, i'm not 100 percent sure about that and it's got an f-type connector so that's like a screwing connector on it so that's you'll have a little cable go into the satellite finder and the satellite finder then will go to the sat box or some other device to give it power it needs uh, um, a certain number of volts in order to operate uh, which you'll find anyway the it's so the first thing you do is you find out you need to know where you are so you need to refer to the footprint satellite footprint and on the satellite footprint is basically a map of the world or the footprint of uh, of the satellite so it's a map of the geographic region so Europe North America Africa Middle East Africa wherever Asia I guess and in there you will see uh, like contour rings and in these particular rings it'll tell you where you are uh, where you are and what you need to calculate calculate out where uh, how what your azimuth is, elevation and that sort of thing, depending on where you are. And you can go to the website and they will have like uh, documents showing all of this. Um, then you uh, adjust your azimuth, uh, which is you find out where south is, which is the opposite of north. And then you move the, your dish uh, either east or west, uh, depending on which way you want to go. And then you pick the satellites. And then you adjust the azimuth, which are the elevation, which is up and down. And then you adjust the the skew of the LMB. Uh, I have no idea if I've said this before because I've already said it three times before. Anyway, so um, I don't tend to use a satellite finder so much because um, it's um, it's an analog device and it doesn't really tell you a lot of information. It is also quite difficult depending on the satellite you're trying to tune to um, if you the one that we were using was next in the slot uh, to the east of the Astra satellites so the uh, 2A 2C 2D and 2F although 2A has been decommissioned and 2G is up there now replacing it um, 28.2 east and it was a very difficult to <laughs> to point that because you were blasted with each of these satellites and all their signals coming down so they Astra co-located all their satellites in this 18 kilometer box so that um, each of them transmitted at a different frequencies in that area so from the point of view of your dish it looked like one big transmission so you're switching physically from one satellite to the next satellite to the next satellite to the next satellite but you didn't you don't have to move your dish because they're all located in that 18 kilometer block which sounds like a, a massive space difference but you know we're talking about uh, you know three quarters uh well, two how far away is it we're talking about 20 30 nearly 40,000 kilometers away so yeah 18 kilometers in there is not a lot and those it's not a perfectly uh, circular um uh, course either that they those satellites have they come in and out 300 kilometers i think in, a, in the rotation of a day but anyway that's by the by i'm 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 now completely oh wind's picking up okay um move in here again uh getting distracted getting distracted anyway yes dish is pointing so um the actual easiest thing to do now when you want to point a satellite dish is you get a kit it's reasonably cheap or you can get them second hand and uh, you go to satellite finder website you put in the your town village latitude longitude where you are and that will bring up a google maps aerial photo and you can move the satellite icon to where you want to put your satellite dish and then you select from the drop down list one of the satellites that you want to tune to and that'll give you all the lovely information down below so elevation in my case i need to be 26.5 degrees from uh from the horizontal azimuth true is uh, 151.7 so if i knew exactly where south was and uh azimuth 
magnetic it says 150.9 so when i'm going with a compass that's the hunky dory so that would be nice information as well but another thing they do is draw a line over the google maps thing and this line happens to intersect the hotel sign that's down at the train station so all i've had to do has been hold on to the edge of the satellite dish and move it left and right left and right until i find that it's more or less pointing at that thing now one cool thing about the uh, so i'm not using the satellite uh, finder what i'm doing is putting it into the setup box receiver which was connected to a um a portable tv and most of these devices setup box receivers have got a um have got a satellite finding mode where they'll give you the power and signal quality and my one actually is able to name the satellite that you're pointing to which is actually awesome because that tells you whoops well i'm say uh, i'm pointing at astra to whatever and i want to point to another satellite well there are three slots to the west of that so let's move at least i'm too much left rather than too much right if you get the idea so once you have that done first thing you should do is try and find the azimuth if you can get that done you're hunky-dory because you know that north and south of that you're not going to be any other satellites it's just east and west the satellites are located so um so yes so try and get that and if your device is able to tell you which satellite you're locked onto you're absolutely golden um, the satellite dish itself is connected to the mount, so in my case they, uh, it's a stand, as I said, with some co- uh, concrete uh, garden tiles holding it down on a flat roof which points south. So once you get that, I've got, uh, there's like lug clips that hold on the clamp. So once the clamp is fixed, the clamp holds onto the satellite dish and it's curved and the curve goal it's got a curved male groove that goes into a female groove on the back of the satellite dish and that's got con- uh, it's basically like a compass and it's in there got the degrees of elevation so that allows you to roughly guess where the elevation is uh, in my case the numbers printed on that bear absolutely no resemblance to um what it says here on this document 26.5 degrees and the thing actually says uh, 19 degrees so well done there but that's where your um your satellite finder uh display power display will help you out power and signal quality because once you get that right you know it doesn't actually matter if you've got the wherever you happen to get the highest amount of strength signal strength you're absolutely golden I remember trying to point a satellite dish for a demo and uh, during the demo it was completely blocked we could not see south and then one of the guys had a smart idea well let's point to the building in the north which was a modern glass building and this enough satellite signal was being rebounded off that building that we could point our satellite dish more or less north and still be able to pick up a reception it was an absolutely awesome demo um so oh uh, you've got your thingy you got your elevation and now the only thing that you need to do is work out on skew so that is um again don't really look too much at the numbers look at the output from your uh satellite receiver and just move it horizontally so if you were pointing the satellite dish if the satellite was like directly south your skew would be uh, zero but the more east and west that your satellite goes then you need to adjust the skew to adjust for what would be horizontal in pointing at that satellite now the reason they do this i don't know if i've said this before but if i did anyway uh, the reason for that is that you um to increase the bandwidth they send a horizontal and vertical polarization so um uh, when this was explained to me at ham radio school, ham radio class, it is actually it's a rotating signal that comes through in the polarization. But what it actually means is that uh, one of the signals can be kept fairly well apart from the other signal, so you can basically double your satellite capacity. Okay, once that is done, what I suggest you do is tighten everything up. Keep an eye on your signal because as you're tightening it up, do like a drummer, a good drummer, uh, adjust the opposite sides 
equally so one turn on the left one turn on the right one turn on the left one turn on the right that will keep it nice and tight and in tune and not moving around keep an eye on your on your satellite settings uh, and that you're getting maximum power maximum maximum signal strength I advise not to do this if you're working on a high building like I am uh, when (laughs) there's a lot of wind going on although it seems to have quietened down now again and uh, keep an eye on your signal tighten everything up and then one last tip is always make sure to uh, just just as I say that it's a big gust of wind came and nearly uh, no knocking me off I'm grand Um, just get a piece of um, a nail or something and just scrape in the lines on your um, on your setup because that way then you're not going to um, whoops ooh (laughs) on your setups that if anything moves like this wind basically moves the satellite dish out of the way that um, uh, that you'll be able to readjust everything uh, rather quickly now just so that is pretty much that now before I go down I'm just going to go over here and clear out some leaves ooh it's a bit slippy You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Thank you.